On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. My name is Dimitri Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Rob Pizzola. Rob, what's going on, man? Hey, Dimitri. Good to be back here and talking to you again. Great to see you. Uh, and also joining us, uh, completing this this trifecta, uh, is my pal, Donald Shishin. Dom, what's going on, man? I cannot believe Rob got good buddy and I got pal. Well, I, I, cannot, I cannot believe you got away from Twitter uh, today, Dom, to be honest, with the uh, back and forth I've seen you uh, having with, um, what was it, Alan Walsh? Yeah, I, I was glued to my phone all, like all day. It was so funny. <laughs> I was telling Rob before we went on air, but Alan actually, I had to I had to go on the PDO cast Twitter account to see what Alan was saying to you because he has my uh my personal account blocked from making from Andre Pavlik years, many years ago. Um, oh my god. So, yeah, good times. Um all right, well, let's get into this. I'm, I've got a bunch of topics here that I, I wanted to to run down while I have both of you. Um, and we're gonna see how much how much headway we can make. So the first one is kind of second half of the season trends to watch, um, especially in terms of Rob. I remember like last time the three of us chatted, I think it was like a season preview at the time, but we were sort of talking about uh, when projecting for a full year, especially after the deadline, when uh, there's a really a delineation between teams that are getting ready for the playoffs and teams who are obviously, you know, looking forward to to future seasons and are rebuilding and aren't going to be making a playoff push this year um, in terms of uh, sort of motivations or incentives changing and kind of uh, how we need to account for that, adjust for that. I think this year seems like it's it's really bordering on the extreme of that because we've already got, what, two full months of the regular season left. And at least in the Eastern Conference, uh, all eight teams that are going to be making the playoffs are basically accounted for. There's going to be a lot of jockeying for position and stuff, but it seems unlikely that anyone that's on the outside right now can even justify or talk themselves into having a chance to make a, a push and get in there. Uh, so how do we sort of uh, adjust for that in our in our projections or our models or our expectations for these final two months, acknowledging that there's probably going to be a pretty big gap in terms of incentive for teams, depending on where they stand. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. The range of teams this year from like top to bottom um, is as, as lopsided as I think I can remember for a long time in the sense that there's so many teams that are bucketed uh, into this like bottom feeders group that I typically would call it. Um, and it makes it ex extremely challenging because a lot of these teams have been playing with lack of motivation for a long time now, knowing that their seasons in effect are just, um, I guess, rehearsals for bigger contracts or whatever they're playing for at this point. Um, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, I'm taking the alternate perspective here in wondering down the stretch, whether or not we actually see the same motivational, like a, a different motivational factor for the teams that are already like shoot into the playoffs type of thing. 
Um, how much is home ice going to matter? Are teams going to be willing to play for home ice down the stretch? Or are we going to see teams that, um, with aging veterans start to rest guys akin to what we see in the NBA sometimes as well. So I think potentially we might see uh, some different circumstances this year. Again, it's been a, a tough season for a lot of these teams, but potentially we see down the stretch, you know, playoff seeding doesn't mean a whole lot for a lot of these teams and uh, teams start to rest players. So I'm kind of looking at, from, at it from that perspective. We're already seeing lines and Dom can attest to this as a better as well, but how many times in past seasons are you regular, regularly seeing a minus 400 or a minus 500 every night? Like it's, it's happening so consistently now and you would see it, but typically later in the year, not in, you know, February and early March type of thing. So, um, Different year, weird year overall, but I will not be making a motivational adjustment, I don't think, at any point, because I'm going to end up playing minus 500 favorites pretty regularly, and uh, I have no interest in doing that. Well, Dom, one of those teams that, that has regularly been uh, juiced as, as pretty significant favorites and, and is on the extreme of trying to potentially you know, figure out how to best align themselves for the playoffs are the Colorado Avalanche. And we heard recently Jared Bednar, you know, he, he mixed around the top six, basically, and he moved Gabe Landeskog off that top line with, with McKinnon and Randon. And, and his justification was he wants to see what works and what doesn't, especially come playoffs where either there's going to be injuries or, you know, last year we all kind of criticized them for, they they like they they ran through the regular season so smoothly, and then they ran into some adversity against the Golden Knights in terms of matchups in particular, and had no real adjustments and just basically kept playing the way they played all year and never really seemed motivated or able to to adjust on the fly. And so they've clearly learned from that, and now they're trying to test out different combinations and stuff. So I think we're also going to see see that as well. Where I'm not sure how much we're going to see in terms of like resting of stars because the NHL is just so behind in terms of its culture and, and it being perceived as weak or soft to miss games if you, if you feel like you can play. But it does feel like at least with these smarter teams that are well ahead right now, like they should be experimenting stuff in these final two months. Yeah, they definitely should. And the Leafs have also mentioned something along those lines where they wanted to try different looks to see what sticks. I know they had Rasmus Sandin playing with Morgan Riley uh, against Buffalo, which went terribly but they tried it and that is what matters and sometimes those things will work sometimes it doesn't and you want to know well before the playoffs whether it is something that works and I think it's really interesting that Colorado is doing that they have a lot of leeway they're probably the most locked in of any team because they're not even really fighting for first in the west they probably have that almost locked up um but yeah a team like Toronto Tampa Florida I would much rather have first in the Atlantic than second in the Atlantic. So that might be one where they still have motivation throughout the rest of the season. And those are teams that are good to look into, but someone like Colorado, they have more leeway to rest stars to tinker with their lineup. And if they really wanted adversity before the playoffs, they probably should have held on to Jonas Johansson for a few games just to see what they could do <laughs> with him in net. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even they prove that at, as good as they are at a certain point, if your goaltending is bad enough, you, you can't overcome it. I mean, they, they really tested the outer boundaries of that this year. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like Rob, is there, um, what are some sort of trends right now? Or, or do you, do you find the market kind of overvaluing or undervaluing certain groups? Like, you know, like it's interesting that you mentioned sort of how inflated some of these lines have been. I've especially noticed with the avalanche, I guess the Panthers as well, like these teams that can, can put up, um, goals to in kind of in a frequency and an ease that I can't really remember seeing 
like this in the past where like Florida can be just struggling or something and down three, one. And then all of a sudden they just rattle off like five or six goals in, in the blink of an eye and, and are up to 55 shots on the night. And you're just like wondering what the hell happened. And you feel like you had, you, if you had the other side of it, you felt like you had it in the bag for a while there. And all of a sudden they kind of flip the switch. The avalanche are very similar. They did that to Winnipeg recently. Um, is there, is there anything um, kind of along that, along those lines that interests you? Well, I think it's been a great year to live bet favorites that um, are down after two periods. I mean, uh, we, we've seen it time and time again. And uh, I don't know if this is the just like the new NHL. This is the way it's going to be going forward. But you have to remember that these live betting models are fine-tuned to previous seasons, right? So any sort of change in dynamic uh, across the league is going to have an impact on this year. And the, the the models will be very slow to catch up to that. So just as a neutral observer, if you're starting to notice these types of things, there's a lot of money to be made. You know, I think about the other night, uh, Pittsburgh was down to Columbus 2-1 at the end of the third. And I'm looking at a live line and Columbus is minus 240 favorite in the game. And I'm like, this is insane. Like there's the, the who is going to lay minus 240 on the Blue Jackets to hold the one goal lead going into the third period. And we've seen that pretty regularly this season um, where you have these middling to below average teams who I think maybe in the past would have been able to lock it down a little bit better, but the offensive firepower this year uh, and these teams that are are coming from behind just seem to really rally and overcome in the third period. I mean, it could just be variance. It doesn't seem that way though. Like it, just from a, a, a hockey watching perspective, I know you guys watch a lot more than I do, but typically I'm watching these third periods and they're so lopsided towards one team when they're trailing. It's like, there's, there's just another gear that they're able to find. So I know a lot of people who've done fairly well off of that this year. Um, I don't actually really have some ra- any rationale for that. One thing I've per- personally noticed on a, a betting side of things and what's been extremely frustrating for me is I tend to bet a lot of underdogs plus one and a half um, puck line bets, which, notor- you know, historically I feel um, uh, that kind of that side of the market um, is not looked at as much by other bettors who are just typically betting money lines. And I talked to Dom about this a couple of weeks ago, but you know, I'm waking up in the morning, I'm checking my score app. I'm looking at these scores and I'm like another empty netter burn me again. Like I'm getting burned by empty netters every night in the last five seconds, 10 seconds. And as I'm like, as this is continuously happening, like, okay, I'm going to actually just watch these empty netters over the course of the last couple of months. I literally pulled up YouTube, started watching every game that had an empty netter over the course of the last two months. And what I noticed was teams are shooting at the empty nets. Like I watched hockey my whole life. And I remember you'd get down, you know, you'd get the puck on your stick, you'd flick it up in the air, try not to ice the puck, get it up off the boards. Now teams are really just trying to end the game and shooting for the empty nets. And Kevin Bieksa picked up on this. He mentioned it on Hockey Night in Canada this past week as well, just talking about how teams are starting to be coached to shoot for the empty nets. That's not something I personally account for in my model. I'm training my model based off of years worth of data where this wasn't happening. So, I mean, I've got torched on that type of stuff this year and I have to make an adjustment for that. It's also affected totals because, you know, teams are taking goalies out earlier, uh, but obviously just the chances of the, the goal actually happening with a goalie out now has been increased by teams going for it. So um, those are the types of things this year that have like, 
it's every, every year there's something new in the NHL, like, uh, that always, you know, I, I kind of racks my brain of whether I think this is going to continue going forwards, but this to me is the new norm. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to Rob's new website, emptynetters.com, where he has <laughs> visualized and mapped all of these. Um, no, I mean, I mean, you, you're totally right. Like, Dom, I was, uh, what was it? The wild Panthers game recently. It was like a Friday nighter. And I think the wild were down a couple goals already. So it doesn't necessarily affect the line in that regard, but they pulled their goalie with like 10 minutes left in the third period or something like that. And they actually scored a goal to claw back into it before eventually giving up a couple, a couple empty netters themselves. But like, it's hard to blame them because the math is clearly in the favor of supporting that. Like uh, this, this specific stat is obviously kind of fluky and there's variance involved, but I think the wild have like 16 goals with the empty net or something so far this year, like when their goalies pulled, not shooting into an empty net. Yeah. And it's because they've played like a hundred minutes or something without their goalie because they're just getting so aggressive with it and, it and it's working. Um, but yeah, that's certainly a new trend. And I think the only drawback for me is it leads to more conversations on these broadcasts about face-offs and, and the importance of them. If they ice it and wind up having to take more D zone draws, but, uh, I guess that's a, that's a less, lesser evil. But and there's also a lot of results-based analysts, right? right? Where a team will pull a goalie with four minutes left and they give up a goal very quickly. And then there's the, well, why would they pull this early? And they just cost themselves the game. Well, actually, now they still have another three and a half minutes to score two goals rather than this happening later where they have no chance to come back. But that that's what that's the conversation that frustrates me. I actually watch more hockey on mute than I do with volume nowadays because I get um I'm just, I mean, that's the type of person I am, but I get incredibly frustrated at that type of commentary. Um, really, really bothers me. Yeah. I'm with you, Rob. Do you, uh, sorry, Dom, do you have anything on uh, empty netters or sort of like you can even move it in a different direction, kind of trends or undervalued overvalued stuff or whatever you want to take it. Um, I know Rob is very passionate about empty netters. He talks to me almost every day. Well, he has a website, empty netters.com. Yeah. Well, when you website. lose as, when you lose as much money as I do on empty netters, You'd yeah. be talking about it with you. You just need someone to tell you you're not insane. So yeah. I messaged Dom. I'm like, Dom, are you noticing this? And uh, Dom's pretty good at uh, you know he'd be he's a good friend in in the sense that he'll be like, you know, you know, I, I think there's something there. He will he'll, he'll never tell me flat out you're crazy, Rob. Well, I'm watching as much hockey as you, and the thing is that we both bet on underdogs a lot. Is that I am more brave and I'll just take them to win. And Rob is a coward and will take plus one and a half. <laughs> well, and so I will I will lose and get burned. But Rob will have a fleeting glimpse where he might win, and then he loses from the empty net. Whereas this has already not affected me. I already resolved the fact that I lost this bet the minute they were down two one because those those better teams can lock it down a lot better than the worst team. The worst teams with a lead, we're seeing them, I think, blow it a lot more this year, whereas the better teams have been able to keep it going. And this year we're seeing, I think, the largest favorite win percentage um, probably we've ever seen. I think it's around like 64 65%. And I remember back in the early 2010s, people were running models and thinking that the high watermark for NHL season was around 61%. And last year we were around there. This year we've blown by that. And that's why we're seeing these big minus 400 favorites. Today we have three of them and one of them is on the road, which is you never see. Well, Rob, I mean, this kind of brings us back to, I know we talked about this once in a recent podcast, but I did want to rehash a little bit here because I think it's relevant. Like we were talking about sort of, especially in football, I think, the idea of like betting a team that's a massive underdog because you feel like the value is there, even if you feel like they might like 
you don't want to be cheering for them throughout that game or you feel like they probably don't have a chance of winning, but you just feel like based on the, on the price you're getting, they can probably cover whatever insane gap that is. Um, you know, with some of the lines for some of these like avalanche games, for example, let's use them. Like it must be a pretty soul crushing experience to be on the other side of that. And, and especially if you get teased at the start where you're like, Oh, my, my team's that, you know, plucky underdog here. They're actually up to nothing to start. And then all of a sudden within the blink of the eye, it's like six, six three avalanche, which is Hold literally on. what happens all the time. I bet on that game where the Jets were up three nothing after so one. So did I. So did I. Yeah, I was on I was, that. Yeah, and I remember thinking I should hedge, and I've never thought that. But with the Avs, I'm like I should hedge. And then I looked at what their line was down three nothing, and it was only like plus two forty. So betting markets said, you know what, this team is down three goals. They still have what? Like what is that? Like a thirty percent chance to win or whatever it is. And I'm like, that seems a bit absurd. I, I have some hope with Hellebuck and that hope was immediately evaporated. And I thought 240 was probably soft. I think some of the swings in hockey um, lend itself to, you know, I, I first started betting through poker um, and I tell people all the time and it's very cliche, but like I can remember all my poker bad beats, like every big hand or big pot I've ever lost where I, you know, somebody, um, you know, hit something on the river or whatever. I remember it all. I I can't tell you the biggest hands I ever won in my life or anything like that. I feel the same way with hockey. Like I, I, uh, you know, full disclosure, I bet the Sabres against the Leafs last night. I bet the Sabres money line plus one and a half plus two and a half. Um, I won't even remember that in two weeks. I'm just going to remember another empty net goal going in and something that was very soul crushing. And it's because of the way, the manner in which you lose hockey games everything is just so close. Like uh, so many of these bets come down to the wire and you just feel like you're on the wrong side of a coin flip so many times that um, it just sticks with you. It's very tough. Uh, I'm not, you know, really equipped on an emotional level to get over that type of stuff very quickly. But um, I mean, you're right, Dimitri, in the sense that, you know, a lot of people in past seasons would have just typically avoided big favorites. I know a lot of people are like, I'm never going to play over minus 200 favorite in hockey. It's such a random game. Why would I do that? I'm going to stick to underdogs. People who've done that this year, they just, they got crushed, like completely waxed betting the game because so many favorites won. Uh, Dom built quite a bankroll over the course of the first half of the season, betting these favorites and they were winning. Um, so, you know, that's that that's the the other end of the, the spectrum there is they're favored for a reason. Right. Uh, and yes, there's a ton of variance in the game, but I think we're starting to see a massive discrepancy between these teams. And early in the year, these games were being priced um, closer to, you know, with, with a much smaller range. And we learned very quickly that there's there's a, these elite teams are elite. Uh, there's a lot separating them from the bottom feeders. Yeah, but the Leafs facing the Sabres is basically a coin flip at this point. And I sadly was on Leafs minus one and a half, which mm. is the rare time where me and Rob have been on the opposite ends and I ate it, which is hilarious because it feels like right now I'm in this run where if I'm on the underdog, they're getting crushed as expected. But if I do take those big favorites, like I took Florida all three times last week at home against an inferior opponent and they disappointed me each time, which was not how things were going in the first half. And I wonder if that is some expected regression because the favorites are winning 64% of the time, but it is a reminder that hockey, while it's getting less random this year, still has those moments where a team that is 26 and three at home can lose three straight to Columbus, Nashville, and Edmonton. Well, I'm going to give you a stat right now. 
So the Colorado Avalanche have played 42 games this season with Kale McCarr and Devon Taves both in the lineup. Mm-hmm. What do you think the record is in those games? Oh, God. Um, Colorado, uh, for, I need to know their actual record really quickly now. So they're 40, 10, and 4. Wow, I didn't even realize it got to that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'll say that they have 35 wins, probably something like 35, 3, and 2. I'm going to say 33, 4, and 3. 36, 4, and 2 <laughs> with a plus 72 goal differential. Um, this is so stupid. They were, yeah. So 36, 4, and 2. So I guess. So, so how we, many, how many games? So that was 42 games. Yeah. yeah. And you said I, plus I, 72, plus 72 goal differential. Yep. So they're actually minus seven goal differential in games in the rest of the games. Yeah, well, that, that, that checks out because Devontae was out for the first like six or seven games to start the year. And there's been a couple of games here or there where one of them was on COVID protocol or whatever and missed it. But yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's going to be a much bigger swing than people give it credit for because less McCarr and Taves means more Jack Johnson and Curtis McDermott on the blue line, which is something I think a lot of people underrated with Colorado's slow start is one of those guys was always missing. Uh, one of those bad guys was in the top four somehow. And then on top of all that, I think Darcy Kemper was out of the lineup for a bit as well. Yeah. And they, and they complement each other really well stylistically in terms of, uh, especially what Taves allows McCarr to do. So yeah, the, the reason why I wanted to bring that up was, um, you know, is there any way we can justify making anyone other than them, like not only cup favorites, but cup favorites by a significant margin. Like I think most books correct me if i'm wrong we have that somewhere around like plus 375 or plus 400 right now and then it's like tampa bay carolina florida in some order uh like plus 600 or something like that um like do you, do you think that's enough because obviously we need to bake in uh you know not only playoff path but um you know any number of factors it's not necessarily as simple as oh they've been this good so far this regular season but just from what we've seen from them so far like it feels like if you told someone that's that like it would be like, all right, there's, you just can't compare this to really anything else. I have Colorado at 26%, which is a true line of plus 285. So even I think that is a little short. I think their, their path in the West is so much easier than someone like Tampa, Florida, Carolina, Toronto, and Vegas They've been injured and who knows what they'll look like with everyone healthy, but they haven't looked right. Mm-hmm. Calgary looks very strong, but I mean, there's no guarantee they even meet. And Minnesota, who looked like the best chance to beat them in the central has really wilted over the last month. So never say never, because even last year, Colorado looked pretty dominant as well. But this year they look like the biggest favorite. I don't think it's particularly close. Do you put any stock Dom into the playoffs being a different type of game though? Because you're, you're running your model based off of your regular season numbers, mm-hmm. right? As I'm doing all the time. And mm-hmm. I also am showing value on Colorado. Now it just doesn't feel right to me to bet that price, knowing the variance that we typically see in the playoffs and just the way that the game, like games can just grind, so to speak, where mm-hmm. like, you get the games where there's no whistles at all. And it, 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 like, it's a lot easier to bring two teams with a, a major talent discrepancy closer together when all of a sudden it's policed in a completely different manner. Yeah. And it's a frustrating thing to watch when your favorite team doesn't really know how to police itself. And 
frequently gets into these modes where they are grinded to a halt. And it's a shame that the playoffs are officiated this way because ideally you want your stars to shine at the biggest stages, but they're not really allowed to. So there's probably something to that. But then again, we might get to the playoffs this year and it'll be just like the regular season. All the big favorites crush. And then we start thinking something completely opposite. I think we're sort of framed by what we've seen in the past, in the past two years where it's been a bit more of a grind and Colorado and Toronto disappointing relative to expectations has sort of led to that ideology maybe. Well, yeah, I think the playoff path is really important to note here because uh, the way I see it right now, barring some sort of catastrophic injury, like realistically, I think there's only two teams in the West that can seriously pose a threat to the Avs in a seven game series. And it's Vegas if they get healthy and they get Stone and Pacioretty back along with Eichel already in the lineup and Calgary. And they won't have to face either of those teams until the Western Conference Finals, I believe. Uh, unless unless the Golden Knights fall back into a wild card spot and then all hell breaks loose. And I guess it, it's possible, but um, that's certainly working in their favor. I don't know. I feel like there's a weird sort of uh, like the narrative around the avalanche to me is, is so interesting because on the one hand, like I think they're objectively the most fun team to watch. You can make it a case for, for Florida just based on how crazy their offense is, but like they have a bunch of stars. They play a really fun style. They're really easy to root for. I think they were built in a very organic way in that they drafted a lot of these guys and then made a bunch of savvy trades. Like there's no, real shenanigans with LTIR or anything that would potentially make people sour on them. Like put all that together. It's by all accounts, people should be like all in on the avalanche, finally getting over the hurdle and sort of getting to the mountaintop of the NHL. But instead they've already kind of been positioned as this Goliath in the league because of that 36, four and two record that I cited. And because of mm-hmm. how dominant they've been the past couple of regular seasons, but they haven't actually gotten past the second round yet. Right. And so it's kind of weird where they're already treated as this kind of like Tampa Bay team. I sort of think not nearly as much vitriol, but I think people do relish seeing them kind of stumble and, and lose and, and cheer against them. Um, but they haven't necessarily really gotten to that point where it may, it feels like we should be treating them that way. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there's also other concerns I have as ridiculous as it sounds, you know, you're one bad hit away from losing Nazem Kadri for the entire playoffs. Right. This is the reality of the situation. And it's honestly doesn't even have to be something terrible or with intent. He just has that track track record where that's entirely possible. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I think the halves are so much better than everyone else, but you know, I watched them. Uh, I bet them the other night when they were in Vegas Golden Knights played a pretty solid game. Colorado really didn't deserve to win that. They scored, um, I think, on their only two shots of the third period, and Vegas really took it to them. There could potentially be something about that stylistic mismatch, like that stylistic matchup that we don't account for. I know I personally don't. I've struggled with that um, over the years, and especially watching Vegas, Colorado last season as well. Um, so maybe that there's there, there's something there. I like. I don't think the Blues are are going to beat the avalanche, but I could see them giving them problems. And, uh, you know, Billy Huso, I don't know, like talk about a guy that I used to rush to the computer to bet against him immediately whenever he was announced in goal and how it's flipped on its head for this season. But, you know, if he continues at that form, the blues are pretty deep in the sense that they, they can run out three solid forward lines, defense, decors, decent. They have a goalie that can steal a series. Who knows? Like they'll get outplayed by the avalanche, but it's a, I mean, we've watched, we've all watched these games for many years now. Anything can happen. Uh, and I know 
Like I watched Colorado St. Louis in the first round last year. That was the most lopsided series I've ever seen in my entire life, but it's a different year. Uh, it's a different I mean, blues team. It yeah. is. Yeah. So that, that, I mean, it's always possible that they can get um, upset along the, uh, the road to that conference finals. On, on the subject of matchups, uh, I definitely noticed the same thing about Vegas and Colorado. And it feels like Vegas has a style that gives Colorado fits, whereas they might not be as good as some of the other elite teams, but they look the most equipped to beat them in the same sense in a smaller scale you look at the blues in the wild and they might face each other's two seed versus three seed. And I would no doubt have the wild favored, but if you look at like their track record over the last two years, the wild continuously get absolutely railed by the blues. And I think they've won maybe like two of seven or eight games and are getting out chance by a blues team that has had a poor scoring chance differential over those last two years. So I, I really do wonder how, big these matchup effects are and how important they are when it comes to a playoff series because as Rob has said in like past podcasts on this very podcast you can sometimes just watch one or two games between two teams in a series and think this is over like this team just has this other team's number yep no I mean you're totally right I think that the abs golden knights thing is a great example Rob like I watched that full game and and for two and a half periods, definitely the first two periods, the Golden Knights were the superior team. And they did what a lot of what they did in the postseason, even though they didn't have Mark Stone available in that game. And they're like, the abs just weren't allowed to fly through the neutral zone, basically. Like they were like meeting them early every time and the abs just didn't know what to do. And then I think the the game winner wound up being like Kill McCarr just basically made a freakishly athletic play where he like broke something up on an entry, took it coast to coast, passed it to McKinnon for a one-timer and in the blink of an eye, it was a goal. And on the one hand, it, I mean, that to me really showed um, what the Avs are capable of in the sense that the Golden Knights played a nearly I- ideal game for the majority of it, but the Avs are so good and have so much star power and firepower that after one play like that, they just broke that game open and won it. So that's why I would be very worried about picking against them in any matchup because I just think, I don't know, I don't know what happened last year, to be honest with you. Like I, I went back and watched that series a bunch of times in the off season. Cause I've, I'm so fascinated by it. It felt like the abs were just rolling. I remember in that game one, they just destroyed the golden Knights and it felt like it was a wrap from that. And then they just like, they got outplayed in game two, but still won. And just, I think got a bit overconfident and didn't really make any adjustments. And by the time the series shifted to Vegas, the golden Knights had figured out how to play them. So I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd be scared of history repeating itself, obviously, but I just think, it's such a superior team in terms of the personnel I mean, we have. There's a small theory. Go ahead, Don. Um, what was it after game one or game two, where Pete DeBoer went to the media and cried about getting penalty calls for being the most obviously dirty team in that series. And then no penalties were called for their last five games. Um, yep. I think that has something to do with it. And I mean, good for Pete DeBoer for having that gamesmanship, but I think that had a huge effect on the series because Colorado had an elite power play and they thrive on getting calls. They get the most calls in the league. It is something that they have a skill for because the way they play five and five is so fast. And yep. if you can slow them down illegally and not get away with it, then that really plays in your favor. And Vegas is Vegas is really good at that. And I think the Blues are another team that is also very good at that. I think Dom's making the point for why I can't bet the Avalanche at the current Stanley Cup prices. It's it's going to be a different game. We see it every year. I mean, it's it's 
the regular season success doesn't necessarily translate to postseason. It's it's not it's not the same thing. I mean, I I agree with Tom. I wish it was. I want to see hockey played at its highest caliber. I don't want guys holding people in the neutral zone and slowing them down and interfering with them. Um, but that's just the game that we've become accustomed to in the postseason. And until I actually see that change, I'm always going to have my uh, hesitations in order. You know, in terms of of whether or not this regular season success can be duplicated in the playoffs. Um, well, what's the optimal strategy for, for betting playoffs? Let's, let's spin it forward then. Like, have you found that it's going game by game? Is it picking series winners or is it trying to project further ahead and like pick either conference or cup winners and then giving yourself the room to hedge potentially if the opportunity presents itself down the road, or, or do you kind of take it on a more, uh, incremental basis just knowing on how wild the playoffs can be but also how um as we talked about the matchups can kind of dictate uh strengths and weaknesses i'm not a big fan of hedging in general because you mm-hmm. tend to be losing expected value every single time you you make a bet that's a hedge um personally for a long time i never bet hockey playoffs just because the season was such a grind for me on a daily basis of getting up early in the morning being at a computer all day that by the time playoffs came i just kind of wiped my hands and said i'm going to enjoy this as the fan uh for once because i can't really do that over the course of a year Uh, and then probably two or three years ago i had a very decent opportunity to get a lot of money down on playoffs so i started doing it now inherently what you're going to have is a problem um, if you're a modeler in that you're just going to side with the same team pretty much in every game. Like if you find value on one team in the series, you're very likely going to be betting them in the majority of their games, unless there's some sort of new situation like John Tavares getting hurt, for example, that would cause a, a drastic shift in a, in a line over the course of time. But even then that stuff's going to be accounted for in market anyways, and you're still going to end up betting on the team that you like pre-series. So it becomes um, a risky, uh, you know, element, I guess, so to speak in the sense that, you know, do you want to be tying up all your money on the same team regularly over and over and over? Um, there are such things as series effects, which you have to take into account, um, specifically when teams are like, I'll just throw out a random example here. I don't want to give away everything, but when a team, um, is trailing three, nothing in a series, they tend to underperform their, you know, versus their traditional metrics in that fourth game. So there's like a lack of motivation or a demoralization type of situation that tends to happen in in that situation. There's stuff that happens when teams are up one nothing, two nothing, depending on whether they won both games on the road. Those things need to be accounted for as well. But general strategy for me is, I don't know, kind of like sit back and play my biggest edges. I would say because I just don't want to be betting the same team regularly over and over. And on top of that, you, we do get into these situations where we're watching the games and you know, you'll, you'll bet a team in game one and you'll be like, Holy geez, that team got run out of the rink. Like, am I going to be ready to do this five or six more times? Like I did with Montreal last year against the Leafs. Um, and I did, luckily I, you know, I had the courage to stick that through, but it was painful making those bets. Right. So um, it's, it's, it's not an exact science. I struggle with it. And certainly I will say the eye test can take over in the playoffs where you're like, I, I don't know if I can do this to myself anymore. Yeah. Um, this is what separates a, a pro better like Rob from someone who has a very good model, but wasn't, I guess, taught the, the pro betting ways is that I will just give her in the playoffs. I don't care. An edge is an edge. And I'll bet on the series and then I will double down on those games if that edge persists. And 
I will adjust from game to game. So if a team gets destroyed in game one, then I will adjust accordingly. And sometimes it's big, sometimes it's small, but I think there are situations where momentum can shift and a team can have a weak performance in game one and the other team can have a great performance and the next game we'll see the exact opposite. And you just sort of hope for the best and trust the process really, even if it's painful to watch uh, with the old eye test. I think one thing in the playoffs though, that I guess we're seeing in this regular season is that live bets are very lively in the playoffs because the momentum can shift very quickly. And I think we see bigger comebacks happen because a team, I think those score effects are much larger come playoff time. For years, you could have bet any team that went down two goals in the playoffs, any team blindly and been extremely profitable. I back tested all sorts of that with, um, and it didn't happen in last year's playoffs. It was the first time I think in, in four or five years uh, where it would have been a, a net negative had you done that last season. But Dom is right. You tend to see more comebacks like that. And I will say like, Dom, that's just your personal preference versus my personal preference. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with what you do. I mean, if you're building out a model, sometimes you just got to trust it and go with it. Um, but mm-hmm. for me, I, I just... I, you know, I'm not really optimizing my model for the playoffs. My model is optimized for regular season. That's the reality of it. So using that same model for playoffs, I think has some inherent flaws. I think a lot of times just as a fan, um, I I feel like it's the only, it sounds really weird, but it's the only bets that I make like where I, I truly feel in the NHL playoffs, I'd be better off just with the eye test and and subjective gut feeling on mm-hmm. games because it, it goes back and forth and you just really have a strong feeling sometimes where you know this team played a good game last time didn't really get the results whatever ran into hot goalie it's going to go the other way this time around and i'm going to probably test that this year because i've never actually tested that theory but here's the model Here's what I actually think is going to happen and kind of run them in parallel and see see how that goes. So th- this year, I think we're going to have a, a just pick winners model between me and Rob. We're going to go through every game and say, what's your gut feel on this? And we're going to compare based on what our actual models say, and we'll see if our gut feel is more profitable. I love it. All right, let's take a quick break here, and then uh, we'll pick up the conversation on the other end. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme, Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work, Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash blue wire, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Recognize employees with Custom Inc. Show customer appreciation with Custom Inc. Outfit your teams with Custom Inc. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at customink.com. Make Custom Inc. your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. All right. Well, I, I got a bunch of other topics here. Do you want to talk a bit about um, the the league announced this week that they will um, be running face-off probabilities on broadcasts? I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's enough meat on the bone here for us to make it a full topic. I just, I felt like it was like a relevant part of this conversation, but it's, it's so hilarious. The league is just so out of touch with what people are interested in. Like, I guess if you're, if you're, there's a certain school of thought, probably if you're a better in the sense of like, if you feel like you've got an edge on something, especially when it's first introduced to the market, you can probably capitalize and profit off of it. But man, betting on live betting on face-offs is going to be next level degenerate. I feel like. I do. I agree. People will do it. People will live bet anything. That's just the reality of the situation. Uh, but like when it, you're going to start to see those probabilities regularly, and I think what a lot of people are going to do is now try to tie success to face-off probabilities as well, which is going to drive me absolutely up a wall. Uh, I remember having to hear this a, a decade ago when the Bruins beat the Canucks in the Stanley Cup Finals, and they had four very good face-off men and. Um, you know, basically people attributed their playoff success to them being able to win face-offs, which we've learned over time really has nothing to do with anything, but we're going to start to see those um, conclusions be drawn by a lot of people again. But, uh, you know, I, I get your point, Dimitri. I, 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 the league is definitely out of touch in terms of what people want to see, but at least it's like something new. That's kind of the way that I look look at it. At least it's something different. It's just entirely random though, Rob. Like the Panthers yeah. are 29th in team face-off win percentage. The Avalanche are 31st. Like it's, I, 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 I agree. I, I, yeah, I agree. There's no predictive value in it whatsoever, but it's, it's just like at least something new to spice up a broadcast, which traditionally has just been like the same forever. Well, so if, if broadcasts need anything, it's more reasons to talk about the value of face-offs. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking is like they... Their version of Spice is doing something fancy with the things they literally can't shut up about. Um, I thought Sean Ferris had a great thread on this the other day when this came out about how analysts like us will always talk about the the macro level and focus on that and how it ha- faceoffs have little value in that sense. And then sort of ignore the micro context where if there is an empty net situation, obviously the faceoff is important, but... At uh, the same time, those who always bandy about about faceoffs will only focus on that singular event and not realize that in the grand scheme, it doesn't matter all that much. And there, there is a middle ground where we can all live and we can all agree that betting on it is still stupid. Yeah, like winning a faceoff in a timely situation to either get set in the offensive zone for a power play or clear it on a late penalty kill or something is no doubt valuable. I don't. I, I think it's such a straw man argument that it, it's not yeah. important. But you're right. Like it's it, it's funny. Like old school people that love faceoffs 
love the number like that is associated with face-off win percentage. And then I turn into an eye test guy where I'm like, all right, we'll watch what happens in the five seconds after that face-off, which we can't assign a number to, but is just as important. Are you even watching the games or are you just looking at the analytics of face-off win percentages? Right. Well, Pierre Maguire is with a front office now and he's not on broadcast. So that eliminates, you know, a lot of the face-off conversation that that would come out of games because he was very fixated on that for quite some time. Uh, when he was with NBC. From a betting side of things, this was always the vision. The vision was to be able to bet on everything. Like Major League Baseball, the vision was you can bet on whether this next pitch is going to be a ball or a strike. Like to get to that level. Obviously, it's just a moneymaker for sports books. It drives engagement. The league loves it because it drives engagement for their specific sport as well. Um, but yeah, like there's not going to be value in this stuff. Like this is going to be. Either, Try to overcome the VIG when you, it's just like a a simulation model putting these two, it's very easy for a sports book to come on, come up with a line on what a face-off should be. And it's going to be impossible for someone to beat that over time. But I mean, from an entertainment value perspective, you are going to get people that will actually bet it. I I do wonder with this face-off probability, whether the betting markets will be using that and whether that model is overfit. And whether there'll be an edge based on that alone. That's a good question. Um, that is a good question. Here's what I'm worried about. And it gets me to um, the league's tracking of events. Um, it's, it's remarkable that in the year 2022, with all the technological advancements we have, how the league still randomly assigns events, the stuff that happened on the ice. And I understand that I'm in the 1% of sick freaks that would care about this, but I was watching a Panthers game recently. And just to illustrate this as an example, um, the Panthers on the penalty kill, the puck goes to the point, the defenseman on the other team takes a point shot. Sasha Barkov jumps into the lane and blocks it with a shin pad. The puck goes out of the zone. He retrieves it, gets a breakaway chance, whatever. I went back to check what it marked it as, and they marked it as a takeaway. Mm. For Barkov, yeah. presumably, I don't think there was anything nefarious involved. I think there's some sort of subconscious bias where they're probably like, well, this guy's a Selkie guy and we care about takeaways for Selkie forwards. We don't, no one ever cites blocks for forwards, right? So they're just like, all right, well, this was probably a takeaway. Whereas if the exact same event had happened for Aaron Ekblad, I guarantee you it would have been marked as a block. And it's an irrelevant thing. Like one take takeaway or one block, regardless, either way, isn't going to skew things. But considering what's on the line and money's involved and, and yep. everything like that, it does worry me that there's like, I mean, hopefully these advancements will cause the league or, or will force the league to, um, you know, better evaluate how they're tracking things. I'm, I'm not very confident because it's still 2022 and they're still doing this, but like these, they have it on their official site. They're citing it on broadcasts and it's yep. just like the numbers are just way off. I have a good friend that bets tons of NHL props. I'm like tons of NHL props. And he's messaging me once a night with a clip, like some sort of clip to apply. Like, can you believe they didn't rule this a shot on goal or whatever? He's tagging the NHL in his tweets of like, hey, can you overturn this and whatever? I mean, the reality is it's it's annoying, but it's going to work in your favor sometimes. Right. And it's going to work against you sometimes. When it works against you, you're going to be very upset for obvious reasons. Cause you're like, Oh, how could they not rule this a block shot? And you bet like over half block shots or whatever. And for those who play DFS, they know exactly what I'm talking about as well. Cause it, it could impact you winning, you know, a, a huge score uh, versus 
something minimal, but it, it tends to balance out over time is what I'll say to that. And we're not going to get to a point where like the reality is sports books want to grade this stuff quickly too, right? Sports books want to uh, get this over and done with. They don't want to wait for some sort of body to review every single game and make a finalized box score because the quicker they give you the money back in your account when you win, the more likely you are to bet it quickly. And they know that. So it, we're not going to get to that point. Um, it is annoying, agreed, but it happens across every sport is the reality of the situation uh, with scoring errors and all sorts of stuff like that. And you just kind of have to learn to, it's sad that I say this, but you have to learn to deal with it over time. Yeah. I, I just think if you're making a, a Selkie argument for someone using takeaways, oh, yeah. like, I mean, obviously there's right. so many reasons why that's a, a flawed way to go about it, but like the numbers themselves on the league's website are literally not correct. Like you can go back and watch any game manually and compare it to what they have on the stats and it just doesn't line up. So it is what it is. I don't know. I, I don't know why that bugs me so much, but. Uh, well, there's a lot of stuff like that though, Dimitri, like when you think about it and you think about the data that has, that the teams have access to relative to what the public has access to. I mean, we use, a lot of us use public expected goals models to make our arguments for who we think, you know, for anything really related to hockey. I do it all the time. And then, you know, I'll get someone from a team who messages me and says, Hey, you like, you're a little bit out to lunch over here because what we're, t what we have access to, you know, is not supporting the same, um, you know, hypothesis that you have. So it's just the reality of the situation. I guess that's, that's another thing too, is the fact that, you know, we're limited in the data that we can use overall. But um, I mean, that's just like another scenario. Well, I would say. Let me give you an example of that, like a bit more concrete. So Igor Shesterkin, we'll talk more about him and the Rangers here in a second, but he's currently on the public models at like plus 30 goals they have expected, right? Next best is Freddie Anderson, just behind him. And I'm very dubious that Freddie Anderson has actually saved 29 goals above expected this season, as any public model would tell you. And the reason why I say that, and I've brought this up on previous podcasts, but I feel like there's something funky going on with Carolina's defensive metrics that are inflating that a little bit. Because if you look a bit closer, like natural statric has them as giving up the seventh most expected goals against at five on five, which suggests that they're worse defensively than the Detroit Red Wings. And not to be an eye test guy, but I've watched yeah. both of those teams and it's just like, it just doesn't pass the smell test for me. And my working theory is that um, the way they're marking down all of these shots, it, it comes up as a dangerous look that the other team got, but Carolina is so aggressive in the way they defend and pursue and use their sticks and stuff that they're like pressuring guys and forcing them to take shots faster than they actually probably would against a team like Detroit, where there's just so much loose space in the offensive zone. And so it comes up looking like, Ooh, that was a really high quality shot. Let's give it this assigned expected goal value based on what we'd expect from it. Whereas it actually probably wasn't that tough of a shot for Freddie Anderson to stop, not to discredit the season he's having. He's blew, blown away my expectations. He's been like a top five goalie in the league, but I just think, we need to, we need to like ask some of these questions and maybe kind of consider stuff a bit deeper because there's clearly some missing context, I think. Yeah. And I, I wonder because Carolina is obviously a data driven organization and has their own expected goals models, obviously is they probably found that something is more important than shot location. And they're defending against that more than they care about the actual location of the shot. And so if they are coach to defend in that way and in a way that makes sense to Rod Brindamore, a famously strong defensive forward, then it's not going to look as 
good to public metrics that don't have as much access to that information. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that hundred um, percent. All right, well, let, let's, let's move on then and talk about the Rangers. I, I don't know. Is, is, is it fair to say that they've given you guys some problems this year in terms of assigning value to them or do you, or do you, do you feel like you've got a good grip on them? Because obviously like, I think based on a lot of the metrics we typically look at and, and assign team um, strength to, especially at five on five play that they're, they're clearly lacking, but then they've got the best goalie in the world. Who's helping them win a lot of games. Like, I don't know that you haven't had any issues with that, Rob. I haven't personally. I mean, Dom can speak to his own scenarios, but like, I, I feel like a lot of people, um, you know, I, I don't know the exact way to put this, but I, I think that they think that expected goals and Corsi is the be all and end all. Of course. But like, yeah. you actually have to account for the goalie as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you might, you might know a team is going to get caved on any given night, but they have the best goalie in the league in the, in net. And that's going to, that's part of some of the edge when you bet on the Rangers is the fact that they do have that goalie in net. Um, now it's not fair for me to say I've done really well with the Rangers this year because I mean, part of the reason why is games where Shesterkin is not there. I've been able to get big bets in against them, and that's worked in my favor. So, I, I mean, that that's included. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people just undermine the goalie or they feel like I see recaps of the Rangers every single night. Oh, here we go again. I bet against the Rangers and they lucked one out, luck box team and whatever. Well, the goalie is part of the team. It, mm-hmm. It's not it's they. Yes, like they got outplayed. This was the expectation going in, but you have to account for the goalie as well. And so many people, I think, just dismiss it or they think, oh, goaltending is random or whatever, which it kind of is. But like there's there's certain commodities in the league that you have to account for. So they personally haven't given me trouble. Um, I feel like they're going to give some people trouble in the playoffs where I can I can only I can already see the Rangers, you know, stealing a couple games, maybe even winning a series and the Mm -hmm. amount of. Oh, here we go again with the Rangers. Like there's one of those teams that seems to come across every single year or come along every single year. And it's just like people dismiss goaltending. Well, it's real. It's a major factor in the game, like a significant factor. Arguably the most, the most important if you exactly. yeah, like you could predict it, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, Dom, I don't know if you've had any issues with them. I've been betting on the Rangers lately and I don't think they're, I don't think they're very good. Uh, my model has them as slightly above average. A little bit more than that if you just account for Shisterkin playing, but I guess the market thinks they're worse than that. And I bet on them against St. Louis the other day, and I bet on them, I think what was it on Sunday, and they won both those games. So I was really thankful for that. It just it seems weird because I know my model does not like them, and somehow I see an edge on them. And that's maybe for me because the way I do goalies has goalies worth a fair bit, especially since I changed that earlier this year, where the way I regress now takes some of the, I guess I, I regress in a way that's sort of dynamic where the best goalies will be regressed less because we know they're the best and because they play a lot and they have a track record and whatnot. And that has kept Sterkin rated very fondly and kept me off some bets against the Rangers that I otherwise would have lost. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of, so we typically look at, especially five on five performance is generally the strongest predictor of a team success. But I think part of the, that is like based on this working assumption that goalies are just exceedingly volatile, right? Like projecting their performance over any period of time is dicey for us. And so we revert back to what we feel more confident in. 
And I guess for, for me, what I keep coming back to is, is questioning whether it's appropriate to apply that logic to Shesterkin at the moment, because it certainly seems like he is freakishly consistent in his performance. I, I know that he gave up three goals on three shots to St. Louis last night, and, and, and that was random. Obviously, they came back and, and won. But for the most part, like it's, it seems like in a lot of these games, he gives up one or two goals, and then that's it. And then you're just not getting anything more. And if you go into a game with the working assumption that, all right, the Rangers are going to need to score two goals, three maybe to mm-hmm. win this game because their goalie's that good. Like, I feel like that should elevate their baseline a little bit. Now come the postseason when they go up against teams that have a good goalie and significantly superior five on five play, that's going to become more challenging. But for a lot of these games, it feels like um, we do need to kind of, I mean, not, not you guys, obviously, but as a, as a community, we need to like re- recalibrate our expectations for it because this isn't just, Oh, I wonder how just going to play tonight. It's like, he's probably going to stop. 93 to 94% of the shots he faces because he does it every single game. When I grew up, um, like the goals against average and save percentage were like the only real, real metrics we had to evaluate goalies. Right. Uh, and now I never look at them anymore. Like almost, almost never. And I saw a tweet today where Shesterkin's save percentage this year is 941. Yeah. And I was like, this is, this is the most absurd. Like I can, I can't even believe, I couldn't even believe it's that high. And like it's, the guy's amazing, and and I, I you know, I, I I don't know how how he can continuously perform, how long he can continuously perform at that right. level, but it's very clear that he's elite, and that's the yeah. point I'm getting across. So part of when you are betting against the Rangers and he is in net, you are very likely going to bet on a team that is going to win, you know, puck share at five on five, generate more scoring attempts but you are betting against the best goalie in the league who is going to be on the ice for 60 minutes of the game. And I think some people will watch the game. They'll see the Rangers hemmed in their own zone. I've watched a lot of Rangers this year. They get hemmed in their own zone a lot. First period last night against St. Louis. Holy geez, at points in that period, it looked like the Blues were playing an AHL team. And that's going to happen because the Rangers third and fourth line are basically AHL caliber lines. Um, so whenever they're out there, they're just getting caved all together. And, but that's like, but Shesterkin's there. That's the, that's the, like the point I'm getting across. He is there. He is a physical component of the team. And I hate when people just dismiss that um, because of the five on five play. Well, there's a lot of like weird discounting of like, they're not even that good without Shesterkin. They wouldn't be a playoff team. It's like the, they he's do have Shesterkin and yeah. he's the yeah. best player at the most important position. I, I understand right. like it's a very, it's a slippery slope because when you rely on one player to that degree, any, any player, like if he has an off night, you're not going to win. And and that's a scary thing for a team game. But uh, if you're betting on anyone right now, it seems like he, I feel pretty comfortable with him. I, I was looking at something I was curious about. It. it was like how many times he's played 103 periods so far this year, not counting overtimes. Um, he's hasn't given up a goal in like 60 of them or something like that. Like, it's just like, there's just so many clean sheets in terms of like, I can just confidently count that for this 20 minute span of time, the other team is just not getting on the scoreboard. And that's an insanely valuable proposition for anyone. So I don't know. I was, I was kind of curious, Dom, you, um, you released your MVP rankings mm-hmm. today. You're on this, really? uh, Did I? Did on, I? you're on this mat on this, on this Matthews bandwagon. Hey, uh, yeah, it's obviously because I'm from Toronto. That's why this is the first time I've ever had Matthews as the heart front runner, despite him being very strong last year and scoring a lot of goals last year. It was never a remote consideration that it was anyone but McDavid last year. And 
for much of this year, I thought it was a wide open race. I had Ovechkin for a while. I had McDavid for a while. I still think it could be Shesterkin. It's just the heart doesn't usually go to goalies, but yeah, as far as total value stats, if you look at literally any of them, I'm pretty sure Matthews is first in all of them. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I was just, I do think like if Shesterkin keeps us up for the rest of the season, I think it's going to be yeah. very tough to make a statistical argument against mm-hmm. him. Um, the only one I would say is what he's played like 65% of the team's games so far. Like Rob, you were talking about yeah. how you've been hammering the Rangers opponent when he hasn't been in there. I mean, oh, that, yeah. that, that, that auto is, George auto is so bad this year that that is that him not only playing 65% is a, I think a reason in his favor because you just have to watch those games. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's, that's a great point. Like the, the heart trophy is the player judged to be the most valuable to their team. That's the definition of, of the heart trophy. Right. And a lot of people forget that. And we get the conversation every year of like, Oh, should a goalie win it? Like we already have the Vesna or whatever. And, but it's like, to me, Shesterkin is by far, I, I, I listen, I have bets on Austin Matthews. I hope Austin Matthews wins the heart. It would be very nice for me. I'll take a nice vacation whatever. But to me, like my model, when Shesterkin is out, it's just like, it's crazy. It, the difference is crazy. So it's run me, to your computer bad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not run to my Sprint. computer bad. It's if the Rangers are playing, I'm not leaving. My, if the Rangers <laughs> play that night, I'm not leaving the computer until I know who's in net. That's how bad it is because Just I don't have to, I don't have time to run to the computer to bet it because mm-hmm. the line is already gone by the time it's announced. So it, it's literally at that point, right? Rangers and Lightning for me. If if you if if I'm not at the computer there, then it's it's over. So um, I think Shesterkin would should win it for those reasons. I did read Dom's um, article though, I, like. To me, if 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 someone wants to make the argument, well, there already is a goalie award, and we're going to have to award it to a player. Um, what for one, the NHL should change the like yeah. the verbiage around the yeah. Hart Trophy if that's going to be the case. But I I would give it to Matthews this year. I think for me, um, the value he's shown for the Leafs this year, I think outweighs any other player in the league. Although I think there's a lot of season left, yeah. things mm-hmm. can change, um, and I think it's a year where you don't really have like a major front runner from the, uh, from a, a positional player standpoint as yep. well. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I think there's arguments to be made for uh, many players and there's no, like, there's no right or wrong. There's not one that I can clearly, clearly separates themselves from the rest right now. Mm-hmm. No. And McDavid's coming as soon yeah. as he starts getting a bit more puck luck at five on five. I think he has a chance to make this extremely interesting. We'll talk. We'll talk more about McDavid in a second. Um, actually, well, let's get to it now, Dom. Let's um, let's revisit the preseason best bets that you mm-hmm. and I gave out. Uh, Rob wasn't here. He he big timed us and he didn't want to join us. I don't know what Unreal. he was doing. The nerve for the season. But we uh, we did a show. Um, it was the day of 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 puck drop on the on the season opener um, back in October, which seems like another lifetime ago now. And uh, I went back and listened to it this week in preparation for this. And I jotted down everything we said, and I'm going to run them by you. And then we can talk about each one a little bit in terms of like what we got right or what we got wrong and kind of what we can learn from it. The first one was we talked about McDavid's point total and it was set at 128.5. And we had a conversation about at what point we'd feel comfortable taking the under and we settled on 150. 
Actually, we were, we were 140, but then we were like, then I kind of talked you into like, couldn't you see him getting 145? And then you're like, you know what? Yes, 150. Um, he's on pace for 119 right now, mm-hmm. which I bring up because he's got an, a five on five on ice shooting percentage of 7.7, which doesn't seem too out of line oh, until scary. you realize it's McDavid and he's never been below 9.9 for his career in a season. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that he's been unlucky and he's on pace for 120 points. I'm very curious to see if he can, he's still got what, 25, 30 games or whatever here by the end of the year. I'm very curious to see whether he can hit that 128.5. He has one of those binges in him, I think, where he'll put like 30 points in like 12 games and he'll be back up to that pace. And we're going to forget that Jonathan Huberto was ever a Hart Trophy candidate for some people. We just need to put famous NHL sniper Derek Ryan on the wing and (laughs) McDavid will get to that point total in no time. Like okay, so next one, Seattle Kraken over eighty eight point five. Wow, currently on pace for fifty seven after last night's uh, strong win against the Nashville Predators. Rob, um, I tried to talk Dom out of this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he made some really good points in in mm-hmm. the and I, 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 in listening back to it, like I completely agree in the sense that I think it was a bit of a flawed argument to be like well, none of these players have ever been asked to score before because it was like, yeah, well, Jordan Eberle was a very featured role player on his team's offense and all these guys. And, and it's not like they were just guys coming out of nowhere from the AHL. But at the same time, wow, we uh, are undershooting it just a little bit. Well, yeah. let's, be, let's be real here. And this is coming from someone. So actually just a funny story that I will share, but someone reached out to me, a friend of mine that lives in Vegas, um, right before the season started, not right before, like when NHL point totals first got posted and he's like, who one sports book opened at 70 and a half points and another opened at 86 and a half. It's like the 70 and a half is the, the right one, right? Because I'm either going to bet the over or the under. I'm like, no, like the 86 and a half one is the right one. In hindsight, he would have been much better off betting the under 86 and a half than the over 70 hat and a half. Well, he like, should have bet the under 70 and a half. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like he's, he's, he's sweating at this point and I haven't talked to him since, uh, since that time. But the reality is going into the year, Grubauer Drieger was a very good goaltending combination. Yep. Some would think, some would think. Right. And like Grubauer has turned into complete pumpkin this season. Mm-hmm. Um, we've and seen Drieger. that happen with goalies and Drieger too, but you know, Grubauer, they've been riding him in, you know, quite a bit this year. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, what are the cracking if they had average goaltending this year or above average goaltending as we expected, they're probably right in line with that market number. That's what I would uh, posit as a guess. Here, here's the other thing is that we talk about motivation earlier in this podcast and how absolutely demoralizing it is it to show up put up a 55 percent xg night after night and just get railed because grubauer gives up goals at the worst possible times in the worst possible ways i watched so many of the first 20 kraken games and it was amazing especially after yanny gord came back that team looked like they were about to turn around and it just didn't matter because they could not buy a save whatsoever and then they just started playing a lot worse. They ran into injury troubles, which I think people do discount. They have been without Brantana for a while. They without Jane Schwartz for a while. They are for some reason playing Jeremy Lawson on defense a lot. Um, and there's just a lot of things that I think the biggest consideration for me is that 
I don't account for coaching and yeah, I yeah, that was... knew Dave Haxall was going to be a problem. I didn't know it'd be this big of a problem. Well, yeah. that, that, that's my thing. Like when you're getting this kind of goaltending, nothing else matters. You basically just need to mm-hmm. throw it out the window. And so like, it, it is what it is. They are 27th in goal scoring and 30th in expected goals generated. And from the talent they picked in terms of the types of players and like the lack of risk they really inherited in terms of going for guys who could potentially score goals to hiring Dave Haxtell, who like the last time we saw him coach a team was running the most point shot heavy offense in the league in, in Philadelphia and which mm-hmm. has carried over. Yeah. Um, maybe because of the way they decided to construct their team, but also probably because he thinks that's how you should play hockey um, is alarming. And so mm-hmm. they're not getting saves. They're also not scoring and it's just been, it's been a mess. So but yeah, when, I, when I think of the way that the Kraken are built, they're a team to me that's built to, you know, get a lead and hold a lead. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when you have a goalie who gives up a goal in the first five minutes of every, every game, <laughs> excuse yeah. me, like, they're, they're forced to chase the game and that's not the team that they are. That's really not the team that um, like, I, I actually think if someone looked into it, I'd feel fairly confident that group Philip Grubauer this season has led in the most goals in NHL history on the first shot of the game. <laughs> I I, th- I would love for someone to look that up because I can't even, I can't, I've watched the first 10 minutes of Seattle games and turned them off so many times this year for mm-hmm. betting related reasons where he lets in the first goal of, on the first shot so regularly it's actually borderline absurd how often mm-hmm. it's happened this year i've got it, a uh, i've got a series idea for you rob for emptynetters.com do a whole feature on philip grubauer you know working along the bit that having him in net is basically as good as having an empty net and then just go through all the times he's given up first uh shots on first goals or goals the, crack, on first shots. the kraken should start the game six on five to try to get that early goal and then defend it for the rest of the game well, but they're just going to give it back up. It's true. <laughs> then you have to still yeah. rely on Grubauer anyways. But yeah, that's the thing. Like Seattle, obviously the, the goal generation is a problem for them. I don't, I think everybody thought that going into the year though. I don't think that's right. something we learned. We learned that the goaltending is bad. Um, and that was just, I, I don't think anyone would have expected it to be like, this is 99th percentile type of stuff that we're seeing out of them this year. Yeah. I think the thing with the goal generation as well is that, when we look back to Vegas, I don't think anyone thought they could score any goals, but they were coached in a way where they believed they could, and they played a high tempo style. And the way the Kraken were coached immediately was we're going to play conservatively. We know you guys can't score. And it's just, I wonder, I really wonder what a different coach could have got out of those players to start the season because Dave Haxtall was absolutely not it from the get go. Yep. Yep. Uh, Avs over 110.5 was one I like. Dom, you said you were a bit nervous about how high it was, but you really Mm -hmm. like them at President's Trophy, winning the Mm -hmm. Central and winning the Cup, and all of those uh, are looking good. So I um, I actually doubled down on winning the Central when they started slow. I got around to like minus 110, and I put a lot on it. And a a lot of my futures bets actually did not go super well, but mid season. I put down a lot on Colorado to win the division. I put down a lot on Calgary to win the division shortly after getting to Foley. And those two look pretty good right now. Calgary's over under was 89.5. And that was one we were really heavy on. 
and they're yeah. on pace for 110 right now. And we actually had a whole bit about how we were concerned about, oh, but they added Goodbranson and Zadorov, and sure enough, Daryl Sutter's made them look like a perfectly fine third pair. So yep. um, they're just they're they're rolling. Uh, we had a whole bit about how I was arguing that the Coyotes are going to be worse than the Sabers. Um, and honestly, most of my logic was that Carter Hutton was going to be the worst goalie we've ever seen play in the NHL. Correct. And he had negative 10 goals save above expected in three games. And then we just never saw him again. And he's been traded to the Leafs. Um, but I think their line was like 64 and a half or something. And we were a bit worried that like, it was like, they could easily just flukily win a couple games and get over this. But, um, they're under on pace for under 50. I think right now, I think we under honestly underestimated just how hopeless they'd be this season. The, the extremes are always the toughest when yeah. you're betting point totals. Um, agreed. You can always look back in hindsight, like, oh yeah, we knew this team would be terrible, but some teams we know to be terrible, just go on a fluky little run and look legitimate. I mean, I think Columbus is not a good hockey club, but they are on pace for like 90 points or something like that right now. The Ducks would have been another one going into the year with a very mm-hmm. low point total that a lot of people thought would be terrible. And yeah. no, well, Dom and I did in this podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> there we go. Although we were kind of skeptical of the Kings as well, too. Um, mm-hmm. So David Pasternak over 36 and a half goals. I liked him Ducks. as a long shot for the Rocket. That's not going to happen. But he's on pace for 44 now, which is amazing considering he started with eight goals in his first 30 games uh, yeah. and had this like 4% shooting percentage or something. And he's been remarkable since Rob, this one's really funny. Yeah. I think you need to go back and listen to just the, how high the notes Dom's voice hits. When I tell him that Elias Patterson's line for points was 60 and a half, he literally goes like six, zero, six, six, zero. Are you sure it's not 600? And you're just losing his mind. Um, remarkably, this is going to be a tough one for him to hit the over. I mean, he's making a strong surge. He's making a very strong surge of late. I don't know if you, I think he's got like 11 points last five games or something like I've that. I've had, I've had people tweeting at me about it. So I've been, I've been following it with very, very interested eyes. Um, it's on pace for 57. On January 57. 50, on January 15th, he'd played 37 games. He was tied for Canucks scoring with Luke Shen, who had played 21 games <laughs> and Matthew Highmore, who had played 13 games. Unreal. Since then, he's got 11 goals and 21 points in 18 games. So. He's looking like he's he's healthy. He's consistently beating goalies with that wrister. I, I have hope, but he needs 23 in his final 27. So this one's going to be tough. Um, this was a tough one for you, Dom. Uh, Jacob Chikrin, 18 and a half goals. Mm. You had him projected at 20.3. Nice. Love that for me. He's got three this season. He did miss some time. <laughs> um, remarkably, though, we talked about how like involved he was going to be and just banking on the volume. He's taken 31.5% of the Coyotes shot attempts with him on the ice. So mm-hmm. th- like they're running their full offense through them, but similar to what we just talked about with the Coyotes line, I think we, um, I think we underrated just how bad they were going to be. Yeah. Um, and my point projections, like they don't really do well in terms of accounting for quality of teammates. I remember a few years ago when Kessel was traded from Pittsburgh to Arizona, I had to warn people and say, look, my model doesn't know he's not playing with the beginning Malkin anymore. Just <laughs> bump him down a bit. And that is something I want to, look into in the future but with chikrin he no longer had like any weapons and so it was really easy to know that he was going to take that shot from the point and defend it a lot easier i think predicting goal scoring from defenseman in and of itself is a difficult thing because it, it can be extremely random but yeah up to up until that point he had some weber-like qualities with that heavy shot where you 
could almost safely expect 10, 15 goals and 20 might have been a, a high watermark, but mm-hmm. he looked really good the last two seasons before this one. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you, you can't evaluate anything that's going on in, in Arizona this season. Uh, last one, we threw out uh, Gerard Gallant, Jack Adams, plus 1400. I believe he's currently at plus 400 or 450 on, on DK. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think he'll win because Daryl Sutter really should. Sutter's got to win. Yeah, Sutter's got to win. He's going to be a finalist. So I, I'm, I'm going to yeah. chalk this one up as as a good value proposition. Who, who are the Jack Adams finalists? Like, I would think Mike Sullivan would be in there too. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Um, well, Robert Brimmore is not going to because he won it last year. Um, yeah, I was going to say Dean Evison maybe before Minnesota yeah. went on this um, swoon here. But yeah, I mean, listen, the Rangers are exceeding people's expectations. I don't think Gerard Gallant magically told you were just to stop 94 of the shot percent of the shots he faces. But I, from a, a lesson learning perspective, what we hi- highlighted here was the Rangers were five, nine and six in one goal games last year. They're 16, five and five and have been one of the best teams this year. And I've seen it talked about on broadcast, like, Oh, the comeback kids, they're so good at pulling these out. And I think people just aren't ready to embrace how random uh, basically winning coin flips in the NHL is from a year to year basis. Like if you look at it, Dallas was one of the worst teams last year. They're one of the best teams now winning one goal games. They have literally the exact same roster. So I think when we're thinking about this, heading into next season, picking a coach who like is heading a team that just didn't win any close games last year is probably a good value bet. Me and Rob are very aware that Dallas stars were bad at winning one goal games last year. Oh yeah. They, we they we know nine, that. nine, six and 14. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 14 OT losses couldn't couldn't be the stars. In the 56 games. That's that's good. Good stuff. Me and Rob bet on all 14 of those games. Well, they're 16, 5, and 3 now. So there you go. I, I made a notoriously horrible coach of the year selection, uh, Jack Adams pick two years ago. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was a we Rick had bonus. A, no. No, we, we had a remarkable <laughs> one two years ago. You liked Ralph Kruger and I liked Kruger. him first coach fired. Yes. Yeah. I was closer, but uh, oh, you, you, you were. <laughs> You were you were closer. I will give you that. Um, yeah, that was a remarkably bad one. Uh, I, I, like I actually won't live that one down for a long time. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's put a put a pin in here. Um, Dom, I'll let you go first. Plug some stuff. Where can people uh, check you out? Uh, as always, you can check me out at the Athletic, where every day I update projected standings and my betting guide, which has turned into a fading guide over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Um, and every month I do an awards watch, which is so powerful. It can attract the ire of some sports agents and their clients for not being mentioned. And every Friday power rankings with me and Sean Gentile, where some fan bases treat this as the word of the Lord and get absolutely unhinged in the comments, always worth it just for the comments. So that's where you can find me. I like it. Rob, what about you? Uh, for those who out there looking to get better at wagering on sports, download BetStamp. Uh, it's a, a company that I'm heavily involved with. You can find that in the app store. You can check out the website, betstamp.app. It's a great line shopping utility. Anyone looking for educational content, check out my podcast. It's called Circles Off. Basically, anywhere that you would listen to uh, or stream podcasts, we're on there. Um, and potentially follow BetStamp on YouTube as well. I put out a lot of educational content there uh, from a betting perspective as well. Well, this was a blast, fellas. Let's uh, let's do this again sometime. Sounds Definitely. good. Thanks, Dimitri. Cheers. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dimitri Filipovich. 
follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.